I'm looking right outside my window right now, and one of these days, one of these days, it's going to look like spring. Adashina Koiki on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. We thank you so very much for joining us. This is episode number 17 on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. And if you have been following us on A Lot of Sports Talk and A Lot of Sports Talk.com, you will know that we have been getting mad all of March. We have been following the NCAA tournament every step of the way. We were in Jacksonville, Florida for the first couple of rounds of the NCAA tournament, had a front row seat to Georgia State's dramatic victory over Baylor in the second round of the NCAA tournament. We also were in Charlotte, North Carolina. We saw both Michigan State and Duke in the third round. Those two teams make up half of the Final Four. We also were in Syracuse, New York for the Sweet 16 and Elite 8 games in the East Region. Michigan State winning the East Region and heading to the Final Four. So stay tuned to a lot of sports talk and a lot of sports talk.com for continuing March Madness Coverage, and we will be live over the weekend in Tampa, Florida, covering the NCAA Women's Final Four. UConn looking to win another national championship. Notre Dame trying to prevent that. The two other teams in the Final Four, the Maryland Terrapins and the South Carolina Gamecocks. But we're talking about episode number 17, and we're going to focus on baseball and soccer. And on the soccer side, in just a few months, the FIFA Women's World Cup will get underway to our neighbors up north in Canada. And we talk with the United States Soccer Federation Technical Director, April Heinrich. She was the captain of the first women's team in the FIFA World Cup out of America in 1991. The World Cup won by the United States in 1991. April Heinrich's the captain of that 1991 team, and we talk with her and reminisce with her about the stories of the 1991 FIFA Women's World Cup, talk about the United States women's soccer team today going into their 2015 FIFA World Cup, and a couple of other issues that we talk about concerning women and soccer, including the AstroTurf fields that a lot of the women will be playing on. And there's been a lot of talk about that and wanting the surfaces to be grass instead of uh, artificial surfaces. So we talk with April Heinrichs, the United States Soccer Federation technical director. But our first guest is Mark Adams, the college basketball analyst on ESPN, a former head coach and assistant coach in major college basketball. Ball. He's also a motivational speaker as well, and you will figure out and find out why he also is a motivational speaker. He is a ball of energy and someone you definitely uh, want to listen to when talking about college sports, specifically college basketball. And we break down the Final Four, the Final Four on the men's side, the Duke Blue Devils, Michigan State, the Wisconsin Badgers, and the Kentucky Wildcats looking to go 40-0 and in the season. So we break down the Final Four. We also talk about other issues in college basketball, including improving the quality on the court uh, in college basketball and how to do it, at least through the eyes of Mark Adams. So our interview with April Heinrichs comes after the interview with Mark Adams. You will hear from Mark Adams and myself in another couple of seconds, and we will see you at the very end of the show. The men's college basketball semifinals get underway on Saturday in Indianapolis. It's such a mouthwatering Final Four that the Duke Blue Devils are part of the quote-unquote 
undercard as Duke takes on Michigan State in game number one and then the undefeated Kentucky Wildcats at 38-0 take on the Wisconsin Badgers out of the Big Ten a rematch of last year's national semifinals won by the Kentucky Wildcats and to break down the final four as well as other issues in college basketball we are pleased to be joined by Mark Adams on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast Mark Adams a former college basketball head coach and assistant coach and a current college basketball analyst on ESPN and for the Missouri Valley Conference and also a motivational speaker as well. Mark, thank you so very much for joining us and how are you doing today? Howdy, great. I'm at the Final Four right now and it's an exciting time and my wife and son are going to join me here in a few hours and I get to introduce them to their first Final Four, so it's a great day for the Adams family, and I'm glad to be with you. Oh, that is absolutely amazing. First Final Four for the uh, family and being in Indianapolis for such a great occasion in uh, college basketball. So I do want to start out, even before talking about the Final Four, the national semifinals, the NCAA tournament usually doesn't disappoint in providing great moments and great memories. Uh, While watching this year's NCAA tournament so far, uh, a couple of moments and memories that have really stood out uh, to you in this 2015 NCAA tournament? Well, it probably wouldn't be a surprise to many people. I, I had the opportunity, Eddie, to, to call the Sunbelt Conference Championship, and that was the game when Ron Hunter actually ruptured his Achilles tendon in celebration of their victory of the Sunbelt Conference Championship and the automatic win of the NCAA tournament. And, you know, I've called the Sun Belt Championship for, I don't know, five or, five or six of the last several years. And, and you know, to, to watch that unfold and, and to see the father and the son, what appeared to be jubilation on the floor, actually, Ron was writhing in pain, you know, from, <laughs> from rushing his Achilles tendon. And then to go to the NCAA tournament and watch RJ, who had played awful in that game against Baylor, and then the last two minutes, you know, loads up, knocks down a three, and of course Ron falls off his chair. And all I could do is laugh. I just saw Ron, in fact, yesterday, and he's rolling around. He's got this little cart that he puts his leg on, and he's rolling around in the Dallas. It's just a classic. I mean, it was just so much fun, you know, not to watch a guy get injured, but to watch how everybody reacted to the injury. And so that was really been a uh, that's a lasting memory. You don't see that as a broadcaster, as you know, Addy. You don't see guys rupture their Achilles very often in a post game celebration. And thank God it wasn't RJ because if it was RJ, there's no way we're seeing Ron Hunter celebrating after after a first round win. So that's the one that's going to stick with me for a long time. Yeah, Mark, I was there in Jacksonville, Florida. When Georgia State beat Baylor and R.J. Hunter hit that three-pointer, let me tell you, it was just absolute pandemonium. I only wish that after the shot went in, I actually saw Ron Hunter do his cannonball onto the court because everyone was just so busy looking up at the scoreboard saying, wow, I can't believe Georgia State just came back from 12 points down with two and a half minutes to go. So I I, I absolutely have to agree with you that – the Georgia State win against Baylor and that moment, you know, stood out more than anything uh, in the NCAA tournament. You had a pleasure of being there in the Sun Belt final, and uh, uh, we had a ple- we had the pleasure of being there in Jacksonville, Florida, for that uh, second round matchup. Uh, speaking of matchups, I do want to transition uh, to the final four national semifinal matchups: Duke and Michigan State, and then the Wisconsin Badgers against the Kentucky Wildcats. Of course, the big story: uh, the Kentucky Wildcats looking to become the first division one men's team to go 40 and 0 in a season they're two games away from doing that uh from your time watching kentucky whether it's snippets or actual games watching the kentucky
Kentucky Wildcats, there are so many impressive parts to Kentucky, whether it's their size, whether it's the size in the backcourt, the play of the backcourt, their defense. Uh, what is one of the, or maybe the most uh, uh, important or the most impressive part of Kentucky in your mind when you watch the Wildcats this season? It's their shot-blocking ability and shot-changing ability, whether it be inside or on the perimeter. You mentioned their length, and, and when I watched Kentucky play, and listen, you know, I, I coached at the, at the time uh, the second-greatest shot-blocking team in NCAA history at Central Connecticut. Uh, the greatest shot-blocking team at that time was Mutumbo and Morning from Georgetown in 89. My 96 team was the second-greatest shot-blocking team in NCAA history. And frankly, Kentucky makes those two teams uh, look like, you know, they look like the, the munchkins from the Wizard of Oz. I mean, it's just... It's incredible that how much size Kentucky has, how many guys can block shots, and how intimidating they can be inside and on the perimeter. I mean, they're so good at moving their feet and putting themselves in position and blocking shots without fouling. And that's the key. They learn how to separate from the ball. To be a great shot blocker, you've got to learn separation. You can't belly up to an offensive guy. You've got to move, actually move away from the ball. And then you've got to have patience to wait for the ball. And then you've got to have timing to go up and get it. And they've got multiple guys that can do that. That being said, though, I thought I'd come in the NCAA tournament. There were three teams that potentially, if they played great, could beat Kentucky. Yeah. One was Notre Dame, mm-hmm. and Notre Dame came close. The other actually was Northern Iowa, because they have length of guys. The key to beating Kentucky is that you've got to have some length or, or the ability to shoot the ball over taller defenders but not just that, Addy. You've also got to be good at driving past defenders. But that was the key to Notre Dame. It wasn't that they made three-point shots. It was that they had to be guarded at the three-point line. Mm-hmm. And that created space offensively, and they were able to get in the gaps and then make some plays. And Northern Iowa also has Paul Jesperson and Nate Buss that go like six, seven, six, nine. They can see over and also put the ball on the floor. So that's why I picked uh, Northern Iowa as well. But Wisconsin was the other team. Because of a Sam Decker, because of a Frank Kaminsky, they have two guys that can see over big defenders, and they can put on the floor and make plays. You know, Seth Tuttle was that way for Northern Iowa at six nine. He could put the ball on the floor and make plays as a five man. So that type of team gives Kentucky problems. The team that played, I think, Kentucky tougher than anybody in the country this year was Columbia. Yeah. And that was back in, in November, December, and I watched every minute of that game because I was sitting there thinking, look, how do you beat these guys? And think about what Columbia does. They have great spacing. They, they had to be guarded the three-point line. And they had a bunch of guys that could put the ball on the floor and make some plays. And they gave Kentucky fits. So a bigger, better Columbia. And so in this case, it's Wisconsin. You know, they've got a fighter's chance in that game. There's no question about it. I picked Kentucky. But if, if you see that spacing working and you see Wisconsin getting by Kentucky defenders, then watch out for Wisconsin in that game. Uh, just imagine if Columbia uh, had Alex Rosenberg, who the last couple yeah. of years is one of the best Ivy League players Great in point. the Ivy League, and he'll be yep. back and uh, re-enroll uh, at the school, so we think, next year. So Columbia, um, not to transition from the Final Four to Ivy League basketball, but you are right, that Columbia game, uh, Kentucky uh, had a lot of problems with the spacing uh, uh, that Columbia did present to them, and you mentioned Wisconsin, how they could also be a team that could cause uh, Kentucky fits. They had a great game in the national semifinals last year. And I do want to talk 
to you a little bit about specifically Bo Ryan. Uh, the assembly of coaches at the Final Four, it is an embarrassment of riches with Calipari and Coach Izzo and Coach Mike Krzyzewski and Bo Ryan. Uh, with your experience coaching uh, college basketball at lower budget schools, uh, each of the other three head coaches started their college head coaching career in Division One with Mike Krzyzewski yeah. at West Point, Tom Mizzo yeah. after being an assistant under Judd Heathcote at Michigan State, his first yeah. college head coaching job, and John Calipari uh, at UMass. Bo Ryan's first college head coaching experience was at Division Three for many years yeah. um, at Wisconsin, yeah. Platteville before Wisconsin-Milwaukee, and then the University yeah. of Wisconsin. What's the biggest benefit, or what do you think was the biggest benefit, are the biggest benefits of Bo Ryan spending so much time at the Division Three level before heading up to the Division One level and now with the success that he has with the Wisconsin Badgers today? Well, first of all, Andy, let me congratulate you on that question. That, that's one of the most insightful questions I've ever heard in an interview. Thank you. And I really appreciate that question. And the reason for that is that I've often said that I believe the coaches that coach at the NAI level, Division Three level, are better coaches than the coaches at the Division One level. And, and I've coached at every level. I've seen it all. From high school, I played in junior college, I coached at the small college level, I coached the high division one level at Washington State and, the, and the, then the Pac-10 at Central Connecticut. You know, I've been at all levels of college basketball. And Bo Ryan is the epitome of what a well-rounded coach is all about. The, the first lesson that you learn in, in coaching at the small college level is that there is balance to life. There is academics and athletics, and you can win while excelling at both. And look at what Bo Ryan has done. What a role model and what a, what a program that's a role model as to how it should be done. You never hear a whisper about NCAA violations at Wisconsin. You talk about Frank Kaminsky, who could have gone to the NBA. Listen, I got no problem with the one and done. That's the NBA rule. That's not the NCAA rule. And, and John Calperi shouldn't be criticized for that. But likewise, you know, Bo has set up a culture at Wisconsin that's a small college culture. He doesn't recruit guys to send them to the NBA. He recruits guys in order to get their degree from Wisconsin and have a tremendously successful playing experience. And Kaminsky comes back. He could have made a boatload of money last year, but he came back. And that's where I think that, first of all, it's the culture, the small college type culture, that I think still fits in American basketball, even at the highest levels. The second thing you learn to do is how to do more with less. And, and I think that's a critical element to being successful in NCAA basketball. I mean, Duke, Kentucky, Louisville, they spend upwards of 16 17 even over $20 million in Duke's case to run the men's basketball program. You know, you and I both know that there are programs out there, like Northern Iowa, for example, that spend about $2.5 million. Butler, when they made their runs to the Final Four in 2010 and 2011, they spent just over $2 million. And they're playing Duke for the national championship and coming in one shot of beating them. You know, so I think that Bo Ryan, deep to his core, anybody that's coached at a small college level, you never become a Division One guy. Mm-hmm. You are always a small college coach for the rest of your career. And I experienced it myself, and I've seen other guys go through it, and Bo Ryan is one of us. He's a small college guy that happens to be at Wisconsin, but he's built a small college program at Wisconsin. I mean that in the most positive way that, that has balance to it. 
It has a family atmosphere to it. It has a very successful, not a winning culture, a successful culture. Anybody can win short term. But it's hard to be successful for decades and decades like Bo Ryan. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I'm a huge fan. Yes. Uh, Mark Adams of ESPN, college basketball analyst of the Missouri Valley Conference as well, uh, joining us to break down the Final Four and college basketball as well. Actually, I just want to expound on that even a little bit. It takes, um, I guess, courage from athletic directors to be able to pluck from the lower level division three, division two level to pick a coach to run a division one level. I know Bo Ryan did make it to division one with Milwaukee before he ended up going to Wisconsin. Uh, Do you think you will see coaches um, like a Bo Ryan who have success in the division three level and eventually get the shot at a division one level, high division one level, because it seems as if the stories of coaches like Bo Ryan are very few and very far between. Well, it happened at Missouri last year, but you know what? The bottom line is the only reason why it happened there is because every athletic director, uh, they're thinking about winning the press conference. They're not necessarily thinking about winning the national championship first. And that's where I think athletic directors today struggle. And a lot of the ADs today are businessmen. And so they, they tend to think of, of bottom line results. And so whatever's going to get them a, a faster payoff at the box office by hiring some sexy, you know, coach that's going to win the press conference for them. Uh, I'm not saying every AD is like that, but I see it a lot out of you. And I see it a whole lot. And I, I think that it's going to continue to move in that direction because how many former coaches, athletic directors now the answer is like zero there's hardly any it's all business people who have come up as administrators there's a place for that i get that but i i think that we're missing that mix of an athletic director that has some coaching background that can make the types of courageous decisions that you just looked at and said hey those division three guys those two guys they're awfully good but you can't win the press conference and and i think that's that's an issue that that only a, a, a an athletic director with a lot of courage and, and, and a lot of moxie and, and is feeling comfortable in their own skin can really pull that off in today's environment. We'll transition to coaches that may win uh, the press conference uh, very soon. Of course, Shaka Smart going to the University of Texas, uh, the news uh, breaking uh, Thursday night. We'll get to that in just a second, but I do want to talk a little bit about you know the other matchup in the uh, national semifinals with Duke and uh, Michigan State. Duke, the one seed, not necessary. They were challenged a little bit in the Sweet 16 by a very talented Utah team and then by Gonzaga as well in the um, Elite Eight. San Diego State, a really good defense. Duke was able to uh, uh, see past them in the uh, third round. Michigan State, uh, a really tough road uh, to the Final Four after defeating Georgia, defeated the number two seed in one of the best defenses in the country, the uh, University of Virginia in Charlotte, North Carolina. They go up to Syracuse and uh, defeat Oklahoma, defeat Louisville to head to the Final Four. In terms of Michigan State, how much of us, even with Tom Izzo, as head coach, and even with Tom Mizzo now taking his seventh team to the Final Four, are you a little bit surprised, uh, at least this year, that Michigan State uh, made the Final Four, or is it a case that they just got hot at the right time? You know, the short answer is yes, I am surprised. And, and But the long answer is that once Travis Trice got the opportunity to just play basketball and not be the point guard, where he has to make every decision and facilitate everything. If some guys thrive in that environment, 
other guys get distracted in that environment. And ever since Travis has had the opportunity to make basketball plays, instead of worrying about getting everybody else involved and what set they're in and that type of thing, you know, Michigan State really simplified their life a lot. And the one thing about Tom Izzo that you have to admire is how he has simplified basketball for his players over his career. And defensively, they're solid, but what do they do great? They rebound the ball in every single team that he's ever had. And when we talk about rebounding, part of it is talent, but a lot of it is concentration and effort of just doing the fundamental things to block off, to make contact, to rebound the ball with two hands. You know, all those little things that, that, that you and I have, have taught as, as coaches and as fans and have appreciated that way, you know, that's, that's really what Tom has done. He's simplified things, things. The flip side of that is that when you look at Duke, you know, obviously, talent-wise, Duke is better. I, I think that it comes down to, is Duke mature enough? Is Jaleel Okafor and company? Are they mature enough to understand that just because they beat Michigan State once, that doesn't entitle them to the championship game on Monday night? And I think it's really going to be a matter of can Duke maintain uh, that, that hungry attitude to get to the championship game? I, I like Duke in this matchup, but, man, you know, it's hard to cut out Tom Izzo, especially with the way Travis Trice is playing. And, you know, they've got every motivational factor on their side, they got a little chip on their shoulder. But I just I just have a feeling that Duke is just too talented. I think I think they're gonna win that game. Yeah, you mentioned Travis Trice. Uh Trice, maybe Sam Decker. There may not be, you know, one or two other better players, um, at least in the NCAA tournament, uh, than a couple of those big ten players. Travis Trice has been uh been playing out of his gourd, just playing so well uh, yeah. in the uh, NCAA tournament. And, of course, you know, a lot of people will preach guard play in terms of having success um, in elimination scenarios, and Michigan State definitely has that with Trice and uh, Denzel Valentine if he can make uh, uh, perimeter shots as well. So uh, Duke-Michigan State, that's game number one, and game number two, Wisconsin and Kentucky. So I do want to transition to uh, coaching once again and down your wheelhouse. Uh, we mentioned Shaka Smart from VCU and the news uh, coming down the pipeline that he will uh, accept the head coaching job at the University of Tax- Texas after uh, Texas did uh, dismiss uh, Rick Barnes. But in, in other coaching news, a uh, coach that was considered to be a candidate for the Texas job, the Alabama job, uh, Greg Marshall of Wichita State, staying in Wichita, Kansas, and uh, re-upped with the Wichita State Shockers. The same thing you can say with uh, Ben Jacobson at Northern Iowa, re-upping with the Panthers as well. Is it possible that even with the resources that will be in Shaka Smart's corner, at the University of Texas, by resources I mean financial resources, uh, that Greg Marshall could have a could have longer term success more so than a person like Shocker Smart who is now uh, making the ascendancy to becoming a major Division One head coach. So I just want to talk about the longer term success and whether someone like Greg Marshall, who has had success at Wichita State, could sustain it even more uh, with uh, less, as you say, than Shocker Smart, who's now going to Texas. Well, both guys are old friends of mine. Uh, Shaka was the director of basketball operations at Dayton when I started my broadcasting career. He was 22, 23 years old, just out of Kenyon College, where he was a Division Three academic All-American. Uh, we would sit there and, and watch practices together. He was like a sponge. I mean, he just wanted to, to get 
every beg, borrow, and steal idea that he could from anybody he could get it from, including me. And I, I wasn't that good of a coach, so there wasn't a whole lot to, to sponge off of me. But, you know, we had some wonderful talks during that time. And I'm so proud of, of what Shaka has done with his life. And, you know, a real interesting story. I, I, he did not leave VCU uh, without a very heavy heart. And I know that for a fact because when he was playing at Kenyon Todd, he played for a guy by the name of Bill Brown. And Bill was there only for one season, I believe. might have been two, but I believe it was only one season when Bill left to go to a, another coaching job, actually at, at uh, California, Pennsylvania University. Yeah. And so when, when Bill left, Shaka was devastated because Shaka did not have a father in his life, and Bill was the father figure in his life. And Shaka shared that story with me, and I shared it on national broadcast many years ago that people didn't know. Because uh, I asked him, why do you stay? And he told me, I just can't disappoint my players that way. So I'm sure it was really hard for him to leave. Uh, I think he will be successful at Texas. But to answer your question, you know, ask Mark Few and Anthony Grant which path might be the most, mm-hmm. uh, most successful consistently. I just saw Mark this morning, got a chance to talk to him. And, you know, the job that he's done at Gonzaga you know, Dan Fitzgerald started that whole thing back in the Jagger back in the, in the 70s and 80s. And then Dan Munson came on in the 90s, led him to the Elite Eight. And then Mark Few was Dan's assistant. He ascended. Few and Munson were both part of Dan Fitzgerald's. That coaching tree there goes from Fitzgerald to Munson to Few. You know, and, and when you look at programs that are really successful, a lot of them are, especially at that level, are head coaches who are successful and assistant coaches who ascend. And, you know, I, I think that Mark Few has figured out that he can win a lot of games at the Gonzaga, be nationally relevant, get to the Elite Eight this year, and and be happy. I mean, Mark's going fishing next month. You know, he's going to go fly fishing. That's what he and I talked about when, when I saw him just about two hours ago. And so there's there's a balance to your life there. Greg Marshall, uh, I was in contact with him, and I, I think you know this. I broke that story. Yes, you did. I yes, broke the did. story that he's staying at Wichita State. And we talked at length about Alabama and, and Wichita State. And in the end, you know, obviously there's a lot of financial considerations. Look, we're not going to sit here and say that, you know, it, it wasn't about the money because it partially is about the money, plain and simple. These guys earn, earn the cash. But Greg Marsh is going to be successful at Wichita for a long, long time, and they recognize that. And the financial ramifications for the university and the marketing opportunities for the university are off the charts because of what Greg has done. And now he's been rewarded for that. And he's going to win wherever he goes. I covered him at Winthrop. I've covered him at Wichita State. And, and he builds a, a tremendous, again, family-oriented culture. Fred Van Vliet and Ron Baker and Takeo Cotton, Evan Wessel, Darius Carter, all those guys are as good a people as you're ever going to meet. And, and that's how you, that's how Bill Ryan's winning. We talked about how he wins. And that's how Greg Marshall's doing it as well. So, I think shock is going to be fine at Texas, you know, but it's going to be different for him. There's no question. It's going to be different. But, but I think long-term that Greg Marshall really made the right decision for him and his family. Mark Adams joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, talking college basketball and a lot of talk in college basketball. You hear it all over uh, the state of college basketball and what possibly needs to be improved. Uh, there are a lot of cynics out there that – 
kind of really put down the game of college basketball, the way it's played. What's your take on the state of college basketball in terms of how the game is played um, on the court with the scoring being down, way down? What do you think about the state of college basketball in terms of the way the game is being played and how would you improve on the game of college basketball if you think the game needs um, an improvement, a facelift, a little tuck? Uh, Your opinions on the state of college basketball. I think there's one thing on the floor and there's two things off the floor. Okay. The one thing off the floor is I would challenge coaches to be a lot more innovative offensively. I, 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 there are certain programs and certain teams that, frankly, you don't need an analyst for the game because all they're going to do is run pick and roll. So, I mean, you know, the ball screen is killing college basketball. It's just killing it. And listen, I, I love the pick and roll, but I don't like it every, every possession. And I really think the coaches need to challenge themselves to be more innovative offensively. I think that what's happened to our game is that it's become a dribble-drive game, and the ball always stalls. And whenever the ball stalls, it means defenders get an opportunity just to reset. Now, I know you can't change rules and all that kind of thing as far as coaches' philosophy on offense, but I really believe the coaches have taken the uses out offensively. And, and I don't like it. I don't, I don't think it's, it's a good thing for the game. I, I like to see some motion. I like to see ball reverses. I don't mind if guys put the ball on the floor, but let's get the ball moving. Let's get players moving. Let's get back to playing basketball versus, you know, a one-on-one clear out and or maybe a high ball screen and the sideline or a flat ball screen or whatever it is. There's just no innovation in the game right now. And that's why I enjoy watching guys like Marty Simmons at Evansville. They run motion. And that's good stuff. Shorter the hip, they come off strong. They accelerate through screens. There's constant movement. You know, that, those are the games that I like to call. There would be one thing, too, and people think I'm nuts, and, and, and I get it all the time, so it's, and, I, and I might be. But, you know, I also understand how people think. I mean, I, I'm a businessman. I, I'm in sales. I understand motivation. And people say, how do you improve scoring? Well, you incentivize scoring. I mean, if, if, we, if we turn college basketball into less timeouts, and into a four-quarter game, 10 minutes per quarter. And I said to you, Addy, look, if you score 20 minutes in that 10-minute uh, period, I'm going to give you a bonus point. How many coaches would score 20 points in that, in that period? You know? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, and, then, and then you don't have to have that for the fourth quarter. But I know how people think, and I know how to incentivize people. Because I'm incentivized every day in my role as a businessman. And, and that, I know it's a, it sounds like a crazy idea, but you know what? It would work. And it would force people to rethink their offensive philosophy and start scoring. Off the floor, I would change two things. Number one is I would make sure that any coach that cheats, if there's academic fraud, if there's, uh, if there's financial fraud, if there's, you know, things that are going off off the floor that are immoral, uh, you can say fraudulent drug tests or whatever you want to be. And if everybody thinks I'm talking about Syracuse, I'm talking about anybody that does these things. The head coach, regardless of knowledge, Regardless of the mea culpa and plausible deniability, the head coach should be banned, banned for life from coaching Division One, Until we make the punishment for cheating and immoral behavior more severe than losing, we're going to continue to have people that cheat. It's just that simple. And I'm not calling out any one program. I have friends right now. I have one really good friend right now who's in deep stuff. And it's in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I would say the same thing about Donnie Kendall as I'd say about anybody else. I believe that if you cheat, period, that you should be banned from Division One coaching. 
Doesn't mean you can't go to the NBA. Doesn't mean you can't coach in high school. Doesn't mean you can't coach at junior college or in any high school. But it, it, to coach Division One is a privilege, and I think that should be taken away, regardless of, of how much deniable plausibility you have. And then the last thing I would change is scheduling. Uh, college basketball is really the only sport in the world where you can buy an NCAA bid. And here's what I mean by that. The Power Six conferences, and I include the Big East in that group, the Power Six conferences play 85%, 85% of their non-conference games either at home or on a neutral site. Now, Addy, I'd still be in coaching right now if I played 85% of my games at home or on a neutral site. And so, because they can buy games, they can use all the television money that they get through football and other resources to buy teams to come in their arena and beat them, play 84 to 85% of their games at home or on a neutral site. And the only time they play on a neutral site is during the Challenge Series. And so I would change that there would be no buy games in Division One basketball, that everything is either a home-and-home home series or it's a neutral site game. And then let the computers determine from that level playing field, because right now what's happening is there is a, a scheduling consortium of the Power Six where they're going to they're gonna hold their money out, they're going to buy their home games, they're only going to play each other on neutral sites, which skews every computer ranking. So all this RPI stuff, it's all false. It's rigged. It's plain and simple. And that hurts college basketball as a whole. And that's what I would change if I were king of the world of college <laughs> basketball for about, for, it only takes me about three days to do it. Yeah. I mean, God created the world in six days and took the rest on seven. I could certainly change a couple of rules in two or three days. Well, there's a lot of uh, things to incentivize scoring and de-incentivize um, cheating, um, as, uh, yep. as, as, as you say. So just a lot of risk-reward, essentially, um, to put in college basketball to make sure that the game is improved, but at the same time, the um, quality of the game and the integrity of the game uh, is uh, maintained. It's a very uh, interesting take that you have, and believe me, I don't think you are someone that has crazy takes on certain things because uh, the game needs to be improved and um, all the ideas that need to be presented onto the table need to be pushed uh, uh, into the front of the table uh, and into the pot. Uh, Mark Adams, I cannot thank you enough for uh, sharing your insights on the game of college basketball and on the Final Four. We wish you all the best um, and having fun at the Final Four and uh, and please have a whole lot of fun with your family and getting to know and getting your family to meet uh, some of the movers and shakers of college basketball, some of the greats as well in college basketball and pro basketball. I'm sure you have a great time. Uh, Mark Adams, thank you so very much for joining us, and we hope to uh, talk to you and have another conversation with you down the road. Thanks, Addy. This has been a blast. You're a real pro. I really appreciate what you do, and, and uh, it's been a honor to be on with you. In less than five months' time, the 2015 FIFA Women's World Cup will commence north of the border in Canada. And in terms of the depth of talent amongst the teams and nations participating in the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2015, this might be the most competitive FIFA Women's World Cup on record. And one of the nations that has a lot of expectations going into the tournament, of course, the United States of America, the 1991 and 1999 champions of 
the FIFA Women's World Cup, actually looking to make amends for the last FIFA Women's World Cup where they lost in a penalty shootout in the final against Japan. And joining us right now on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast to talk a little more about women's soccer is one of the best players ever to put on the red, white, and blue for the United States of America on the soccer pitch, April Heinrichs, captain of the 1991 team that won the inaugural FIFA Women's World Cup in 1991. She used to also coach the national soccer team from 2000 to 2005 and is now the development director for women's soccer at the United States Soccer Federation. First of all, April, thank you so very much for joining us. And uh, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Um, And I mentioned you're a member of the uh, 1991 uh, team that won the Women's World Cup, the inaugural Women's World Cup in 1991 in China. Uh, What what has amazed you the most in terms of the growth of women's soccer between that time in 1991 today to today? Yeah, I would I would say first and foremost just the growth as you mentioned. It's um very popular and I think women's soccer is part of common language around uh, water coolers on Mondays, uh not every Monday but certainly uh regularly. And uh, the media and sponsor attention has been amazing. Uh, I think that this World Cup will uh, come and go in June, and most Americans will hear something about it, whereas in previous World Cups, I think there's still niches of people that wouldn't know about it. In 1991, when you played that first FIFA Women's World Cup, it must have been a dream come true, but then at the same time, you were playing in 1991 in the Women's World Cup uh, in China, which, of course, didn't have the most friendly uh, diplomatic relations at the time with the United States. So uh, were there some sort of mixed emotions being a part of such a great event um, and being in China during that time in the late 80s and early 90s? Well, politics had nothing to do with sport back in those days. Um, the Chinese people couldn't have been more gracious um, the fans came out in the thousands to watch us play. I think there were 55,000 Chinese people at the World Cup Finals. All of the games were well attended. We were we were superstars from landing at the airport to traveling in the bus to and from the hotel and to and from stadiums. Um, the way that the Chinese embraced uh, the women's game actually led FIFA and U.S. soccer and sport leaders to believe that women's soccer could be popular. When the Chinese people came out and treated treated us with such respect and treated us by uh, attending our games, I think that led other people to believe that maybe this could happen in other countries. Once again, April Heinrich joining us, talking women's soccer on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. Uh, you mentioned the reception that the country and the Chinese people gave to you and to the teams uh, at the inaugural FIFA Women's World Cup. Did that meet expectations? Did that exceed expectations? Oh, far exceeded anything we thought would happen. Uh, certainly in the late 80s and 19, early 1990s, uh, women's soccer wasn't nearly as popular as it is today. And so... You know, we, we would travel as a team, and people would think we were a high school team uh, if you were inside the United States. Uh, so the, the 
the way that we were celebrated in 91 and the way that the Chinese um, people and FIFA put on that World Cup, it felt like a World Cup. It, it felt like today's World Cup for me. I wouldn't change my experience for today's experience. Uh, who were your inspirations when you were growing up and playing soccer? Was it just something where you enjoyed the sport of soccer and just moved up the ranks and then was part of uh, the uh, United States women's soccer team? Were there any players or teams or nations uh, that you either followed back when, when there wasn't as much exposure to international soccer then as there is right now? Any players or uh, teams that you watched uh, back in the 80s that kind of inspired you to play soccer? Well, that's a good question. You know, that's maybe the biggest thing. Uh, Back to your first question, that's maybe the biggest thing that's changed is uh, when I was playing, there wasn't a professional uh, women's league. There wasn't a women's national team. Uh, we didn't have really men's soccer in America. And we didn't have a lot of soccer being imported from the United States, or, or sorry, from around the world. And so I was certainly aware of Pele, but I can't say that he served as a role model. I, I mean, I didn't know enough about him. Um, there just wasn't video. There wasn't um, access to other soccer. So my role models were actually um, basketball players and coaches. I I was very fond of John Wooden and um, thought I wanted to go to play basketball at UCLA. Um, So, you know, it's changed a great deal. Today the young people have um, Mia Hamm and Christine Lilly and Julie Foudy that they still uh, remember. And then um, even the younger ones don't remember that far back. They, they certainly see, look to Abby Wambach and Alex Morgan and uh, Christy Rampone as role models. Uh, you mentioned a lot of those players and uh, going back to a lot of the players that you mentioned back during the uh, 1999 uh, Women's World Cup when we first were, when a lot of generations of fans were first exposed uh, to the quality of women's soccer right around that 1999 uh, Women's World Cup and of course that famous uh, ad campaign of wanting to have uh, the President Bill Clinton watch uh, the Women's World Cup and the uh, Women's World Cup final. So a lot of 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 people first were exposed to women's soccer uh, during that time, during the uh, 1999 mm-hmm. uh, Women's World Cup. I do want to mention one of the players that was a part of the 99 team, as well as the uh, 1991 team, uh, Michelle Akers, who uh, led the uh, women's team in goals in the 1991 uh, FIFA World Cup with 10 goals. For the generations of play- of, of people and soccer fans that grew up with the 99 team and saw Michelle Akers, they may not have realized that she was the greatest, uh, 105 goals uh, in international play. Just being a teammate of Michelle Akers uh, during her peak powers, uh, just describe uh, how good of a player she was. And uh, just really for those that didn't get to see Michelle uh, again during her peak powers, just uh, describe her game and uh, and talk about how great of a player she was. Well, it took about five minutes to realize that Michelle was one of the most technically gifted players that you will ever see. And um, I think she could play in today's game uh, and play on the senior women's team today. She had two good feet, played with all the surfaces of her feet, um, struck the ball well, long range, short range. Um, she was good in possession skills that we still value to the, in today's game. And she was a threat. Her pass, 
as well, short and long range pass, as well as herself. She was dangerous when she was in and around the box. She was also incredibly psychologically tough. And so um, she was a winner, a competitor. She she never really quit and uh, didn't know what the word quit meant and um, quite often pushed herself to the brink. But um, certainly by all standards from 15, 16 years ago, that's 1999 by now, um, to today's standards, she's still one of the best we've ever seen play. Once again, joining us, April Heinrichs on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast, talking women's soccer in that final uh, in 1991 against Norway. Uh, there had to be chills uh, uh, going down your spine, being the captain on the team that's playing in the first final and then actually winning uh, that matchup against Norway. I believe I just... Uh, came across a story that uh, yourself, your team, and Norway had to uh, stay in the same hotel uh, leading up to the game. Uh, that had to cause some uh, angst amongst the team. So uh, what do you remember about uh, the lead-up to the final and then that World Cup final against Norway? Well, you know, 91 World Cup was unique. It was held in China. It was um, played in various venues in women's soccer we do stay in the same hotel we have we have stayed in the same and shared the same cafeteria if you will only divided by a partition um we've shared the same floors we've shared the same meeting spaces um that's pretty typical of women's soccer at a world event and even at some of the youth world cups today so you know you become friends and friendly with um many of the people uh, the star of the Norwegian team, um, Heidi Stora, as, is a friend of mine from way back in the 1980s, as is uh, Pia Sunog, who once coached the women's team in the most recent World Cup. She and I actually played against each other uh, in the 80s in Italy, in the 80s during international play. And then, of course, we, we met in Sweden, or sorry, in China in the 91 World Cup as captains where we shook hands and uh, then competed against each other. So, you know, those women's women's soccer is pretty friendly on and off the field. We're quite friendly with each other. And now with the women having a professional league and some of our players going to Europe to play, they're even more uh, familiar with each other. Once again, April Heinrichs joining us on the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast and this uh, FIFA Women's World Cup to be played to our north uh, in Canada. And one of the big sticking points uh, and talking points uh, leading into the uh, FIFA Women's World Cup for 2015 is the use of synthetic turf for the playing surfaces in a lot of the arenas uh, up in Canada and the concern about the health of the players uh uh, specifically injuries possibly linked to being to playing on synthetic field turf. Uh, how much of a concern do you believe that is? Well, I think the turf is the turf is a challenge because nobody enjoys playing on turf. Nobody would choose <laughs> turf over grass. The, the game was designed to be played on grass, and so uh, you know it's it's it's. Difficult, difficult to know. It changes the game, changes the way the ball uh, interacts with the surface. Um, but that said, all the teams are going to be playing on turf. All, all things will be equal, and uh, we'll deal with it in the same way that we have to deal with weather. Should weather roll into town, we'll deal with it in the same way that you have to deal with the referee. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I'm sure our players will be just fine. Yeah. Uh, in I guess future World Cups, would that be a point of emphasis uh, with FIFA, or you would hope that would be a, a point of emphasis with FIFA that future World Cups should have all of the arenas have natural grass surfaces? I would think that's the that's the message. That's the the message that they heard by now is that. Um, you know, we understand that in some countries there's not grass and uh, there's not they're not capable of watering grass, and so that an artificial surface is required for the game to be played. And the approval of uh, artificial surfaces being uh, sanctioned by FIFA. Uh, but we also understand that the Women's World Cup is a once every four years opportunity. It's an opportunity to um, get thousands of more fans to go towards and, and become fans of women's soccer and soccer in general, which is part of FIFA's mission and goals. And that um, millions of people will be paying attention this summer. And I think that FIFA probably heard that, you know, it's, it's women's soccer is getting to the point where we don't, we don't really want the game to be played on artificial surface. And so I think for future World Cups, I, I would say that they heard that message. Uh, you mentioned a lot of the people and fans that will pay attention to the uh, Women's World Cup this year, and a lot of Americans will pay attention, uh, obviously. And the United States got drawn into a very, very tough group uh, with Australia and uh, Sweden, as well as probably the best uh, African-playing country amongst the women's teams uh, in Nigeria. So as much as the United States wants to atone for coming up just short in the last FIFA Women's World Cup, uh, there is a very tough group uh, that the United States has to be in. Do you think this is a group where the United States will shine uh, because of the toughness of the group compared to other groups that the United States were drawn in in World Cups past? I guess it depends on how you define shine. You know, it's a 5-0 win um, against the team that's participating in its first ever World Cup uh, is a shining moment, then then no, we're not going to have that opportunity in this World Cup. Um, there are 24 teams in this World Cup for the first time. FIFA's gone from the 16-team format to the 24-team format. And so there, there are going to be some really tough groups. Certainly the U.S. has been put in a tough group. Um, Canada's in the tough group, although uh, less people are talking about that group, but I think the parity is pretty great in um, Group A. And so, you know, um, I'm less concerned about whether we have um, brilliant performances in, in the group play as as opposed to finding ways for our team to gain confidence from one game to the next game finding um, the right chemistry between all the players because everybody deals with stress and pressure a little bit different, differently. And so for me, the I, I'm looking at it as a marathon rather than a sprint. We want to play seven games. If we can play seven games, that means we're in the um, finals. And uh, if we don't play great in the first game, that's all right. If we can get the points, as many points as possible, led to good, and then build on that to improve to the next game and build on that to improve to the next game. Because we, have a, we actually have a history of starting off a little slow in the World Cups, and we also have an equally strong history of finishing well in the World Cups. Yeah. So um, I think that the key for our coaching staff will be just to find ways to improve from game to game. And, yes, we're going to face some amazing opponents in group play, but uh, you can't expect to win a World Cup without facing amazing opponents um, 
in the next stages as well. So I think it's good for the game to start off this strong. Uh one of the opponents that's very strong, and you mentioned it, it is the host country in Canada, and I think a lot of fans will remember uh, the Olympic Games where the United States uh, had a fairly miraculous uh, victory uh, in a dramatic victory, of course, uh, in the Olympics against Canada, and Canada's had their share of successes against the United States as well. Um, how intense is the rivalry uh, in women's soccer between Canada and the United States, and can you imagine uh, Canada and the United States going up against each other at some point down the road in the host country? That probably is going to be something that a whole lot of almost all of North America is going to uh, uh, pay attention to. So how intense is the rivalry between uh, Canada and the United States, and would you like to see that played out in Canada in the biggest stage for women's soccer? Yeah, I think there's a lot of rivalries actually now in the women's game. That's what's so great. You know, it isn't about the top four teams. Uh, years ago, probably only four or five teams could win a World Cup, and now there's um, maybe seven, eight, maybe as far as nine uh, teams deep that could win the World Cup. And so um, there's some great rivalries. You know, Norway, Sweden's a great rivalry. The United States, China is a great rivalry. The United States, Norway is a Historic rivalry going back in, into the 90s. Um, Canada has become a rivalry with us as well. Um, I think the Canadian fans will support their team. I, I expect um, most of their games, if not all their games, will be sold out. And so any team that faces Canada is going to be the underdog with that home crowd um, up in Canada this summer. And I think that... Um, in a way, we look at it a little bit like a home crowd. You know, they are our sister border, um, and and they sit right close to us. And so it's so accessible to all the Americans to get up there. So I think there's going to be a lot of games where it feels like a rivalry. Uh, France. France and Sweden are becoming rivalries. They've met a couple times in um, post-group play playing at the World Cup and the Olympics. So that's another great rivalry. Mm-hmm. I think it's a great tournament for fans that can make it or if they can't make it to watch uh, during the course of the summer. Absolutely. And I just want to end uh, on this. I know in the last uh, FIFA World Cup for men uh, in Brazil, the United States fans or fans from the United States bought more tickets uh, to the FIFA World Cup than any nation outside of the hosts in Brazil. And I'm sure you expect the same deal in terms of Uncle Sam's army coming uh, from the south to the north and uh, filling the stadiums up in Canada. I do. I mean, I'm always sort of cautious with the word expect or expectations. But, you know, I think it's a, it's a chance where there's no guarantee that this World Cup, uh, FIFA World Cup, will be back in the United States or even on North America uh, for, it could be 16 years before it comes back. And so for all the parents who are thinking about going out um, buying a ticket to the World Cup, for all the Americans that are thinking about making the trek, I would encourage them to do so because... It's a lot more accessible, easier, uh, less jet lag. Uh, the currency is quite easy to deal with. It's going to be a lot easier than uh, almost any other country the World Cup will be held in. So and I you, hope they come out. And you'll be there, right? 
I'll be there. All right. Yes, uh, April Heinrichs, Development Director for Women's Soccer at the United States Soccer Federation and one of the great players to ever wear uh, the red, white, and blue on a soccer pitch. April Heinrichs, it has been a pleasure talking with you uh, about the game of soccer. Thank you so very much for joining us, and we will definitely uh, catch up with you down the road. Thank you. Well, that just about does it for this edition of the A Lot of Sports Talk podcast. We thank April Heinrichs as well as Mark Adams so very much for joining us and providing their insight to the podcast. So episode number 17 about to be put in the books. Our next podcast will come out in a matter of hours. It's our A Lot of Sports Talk Major League Baseball preview edition. And we talk with a couple of people with teams that have high expectations going into the 2015 season. We talk with Masson's FP Santangelo to talk about the Washington Nationals going into this season. They made a big splash getting Max Scherzer from the Detroit Tigers in free agency. We also talk with Shannon Dreyer, Seattle Mariners beat reporter on KIRO Radio in Seattle, talking about a team, the Seattle Mariners, with high expectations going into this season 87 wins last year just missing out on the wild card in the american league but a lot of things are expected from the seattle mariners in 2015 we'll have another guest or two on the show as well but it is our major league baseball preview 2015 that is our next podcast coming out really in just a matter of hours so stay tuned for that and stay tuned to a lot of sports talk and a lot of sports talk.com for continuing coverage of march madness the 2015 NCAA tournament, and we will have our boots on the ground in Tampa, Florida, covering the NCAA Women's Final Four. So once again, we can't thank you enough for joining us once again. My name is Adashina Koike. We will see you literally in just a matter of hours for our next podcast, the Major League Baseball Preview Special. Thank you so much for joining us, and we'll see you down the road. You take care. Bye-bye.